Hello and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast from Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We are so glad you've tuned in. My name is Ryan and I'll be your host today. Our prayer as you listen to this sermon series on the final journeys of Paul in Acts is that you'll be encouraged and built up in your walk with Jesus as we study God's word together. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. But if you are staying in here, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Gonna start in verse 17 this morning. We're gonna work our way, Lord willing, to the end of chapter 22. I was gonna do kind of a broad sweep over a number of chapters, but then decided against that this week. And so, but we are gonna do quite a bit. Called to this morning, always be ready. And as I was kind of reflecting on what Paul has. Kind of this kind of experience in Paul's life here, that always be ready title made me think of my son Trey. I have six kids. Number the second youngest is Trey, and he's three years old. He's my only boy. And I'm quickly discovering, I always knew boys were different, but I'm just quickly discovering how different they are, how much more aggressive they are. Um, Trey's thing, he just wants to fight all the time. And if he doesn't fight me, like physically, then he wants me to grab a toy and those toys to fight each other. He's really into superheroes these days. And uh, you may see him walking around with his Spider-Man costume on and he's constantly shooting webs at me as his Spider-Man. One of the things with Trey is though, he doesn't always tell me when he wants to fight. He just kind of throws the first punch. He's a lefty. At least he seems to be a lefty. And so when you're sitting beside him, every once in a while, he'll just, he, and he sometimes does the wind up right now. I think he's seen that on cartoons and stuff. The wind up, uh, this lefty, and then he just punches me. Sometimes if I'm kind of not paying attention, he'll go on the table and kind of do a drop kick on me. You always have to be ready around Trey for anything. If you're sitting beside him or near him, you need to be prepared to face some pain at some point when you least expect it to happen. And what we're going to see with Paul here is this idea of readiness, this spiritual readiness, and and really what he needs to be ready for. And we're going to see that throughout this passage, and and I think it's going to speak to us. I pray it's going to speak to us on how we also need to be ready for certain things. You are fortunate that you don't have to be ready for a drop kick from Trey, but there are a number of things that are actually far worse that we all need to be ready for. And we're going to see that as we work through this chapter together. So chapter 21, remember we left off, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and people were trying to stop him. In fact, other believers were trying to stop him. Uh, All these prophecies were, were, were being spoken, saying whoever goes, remember Agabus holds up the belt, whoever goes, whose belt this is, is going to be bound in Jerusalem. And the other believers, Luke tries to stop him out of that. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready, he says. You remember that line? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the sake of Jesus, for the name of Jesus. 
And so Paul now is heading into Jerusalem. He has an offering that he wants to give to the church, but he also loves his Jerusalem, his, his Jewish brothers and sisters dearly. We see this in Romans 9 when he says, I wish I myself could be a curse for the sake of my brethren. He, he, longs, for, he longs for other Jewish brothers and sisters of his family of him to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to be able to share the gospel with him. So he wants to go, so he's on his way to Jerusalem anyway, bound by the Holy Spirit, compelled by the Holy Spirit, he goes to Jerusalem. And what we're picking off today is he's in Jerusalem. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. Now notice who is the leader here that's mentioned? You may not want to tell our Catholic brothers and sisters, but Peter has not always been the leader of the church. James here is mentioned as the leader. And this James is not James, the brother of John. We know because he's already been killed in Acts chapter 12. So this is James, almost certainly James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the church. So that primacy of Peter all the way through, it kind of fails even right here. James is the leader. All the elders present, verse 19, after greeting them, the related, uh, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he begins to share what God's been doing among the Gentiles. And look what happens in verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God. They had a mini worship service. They praised God for all of the things that he was doing among the Gentiles. And so we always have to be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice. We always have to be ready to rejoice at the work that God is doing. This baptism that happened on the weekend, that's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason for us to celebrate. We always have to be prepared for God to show up like this and to celebrate with other believers what he is Doing. So he shares what God's been doing among the Gentiles. Now it's their turn to share what God's been doing in Jerusalem. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands or myriads, talking about many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So God's been doing a huge work in Jerusalem. There's now thousands of people who believe. They're all zealous for the law and they have been told about you. That's a scary line in and of itself, isn't it? When you meet someone and they say to you, oh, I've, I've heard about you. <laughs> well, what have you heard about? We've been told about you. And here we're going to see Paul was, had these rumors being spoken against him which weren't even true. We've, we've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So we've heard about you, that you speak against Moses, that you are telling Gentiles that to just to kind of completely forsake Moses, which isn't true fully. It's not a, a means of their salvation. They don't have to follow the law of Moses or have their children circumcised as an, in an efficacious way, in a way that is salvific. So in some sense, there, there, there's some element of truth to that, but he never told them to forsake Moses. And then all the Jews, he certainly didn't say that for the Jews either. So verse 22 goes on, what's, what's to be done then? So there's these rumors being said, you have this strained relationship with the Jewish people, even though you really haven't done anything wrong, but you have this strained relationship. So what are we going to do about it? 
They will certainly hear that you've come. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This will be a Nazarite vow, 30-day vow. And, Paul, and James instructs Paul to say, hey, it might be a good idea for you to participate in these to show that you're not against these things. Paul taught that the Jewish people, for their salvation, did not have to circumcise their children, did not have to follow these customs. They could continue to do that if they would like, but did not requirements of their salvation. And so James says, maybe if you participate with them, they'll, you'll, you'll show the Jewish people that, that these things that have been said about you aren't true. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what, you, what, have been, what has been strangled. Remember, that's from Acts chapter 15 from the Jerusalem Council. This was the requirements on the Gentile people. So it just kind of reiterates that here. Verse 26, then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. Now, he wouldn't have participated in the Nazarite vow, but this would have been a vow for uh, a kind of a purification vow or ceremony that would be done with Jewish people that come out of Gentile lands back into Jerusalem, back into Jewish territory. And so Paul participates in that with them, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So why would Paul do this? It's kind of, a, it's a subject of kind of discussion. Why would Paul do this? And, and he's not doing any of these things for, in a, an efficacious way. And what I mean by that is for his salvation. It's not doing these to merit his salvation, but in some sense to, uh, as a remembrance. But why would he do this? Because there's some debate to whether or not he really should have done it. And I think there's some very legitimate means, uh, legitimate arguments to say maybe he shouldn't have done that. But the reason for why Paul did that, for what he says in 1 Corinthians 12.9, he wants to be all things to all people. He wants to be all things to all people. And so for the sake of unity, he does this. For the sake of appeasing the conscience of the Jewish people, even though these things were not required of him, he submitted to them so that he could share the gospel with them, so that that, that, that unity would happen, which, which would give them, then him, an open door to share the gospel. And so this could be an example then of Paul um, being very firm on essentials, but flexible on non-essentials. So things that can be done culturally that do not go against the teaching of the gospel that he submits himself to for the sake of unity, for the sake of appeasing the conscience of these Jewish believers. And so he does this. Verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So they see him in the temple doing this vow, and they know who he is. They don't like him. Verse 28, they're crying out, men of Israel, help. We need a mob together. Help. This is the man who has been teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. So he's been teaching against the law, against the temple, they say. And then all, uh, so moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, they assumed 
They saw Paul with a Gentile and they assumed he brought him into the temple. They saw him and to to bring a Gentile into the temple, that's punishable by death. Paul knew that. And they just kind of make up this story. They say, hey, look at Paul's beside this Gentile. He must have brought him into the temple. So he needs to die. All the city, verse 30 goes, all the city was stirred up. The people ran together as a mob. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once, the gates were shut. So the picture is Paul in the temple. The people drag him out. And as soon as they drag him out, they they shut the doors. They shut the gate behind. Why would they do that? Probably a couple of reasons. Number one, they were going to kill him. They didn't want any of that to defile inside the temple. But I think even more than that being said here by Luke, because he didn't have to mention this. So why would he mention the doors shut? They drag him out. And it's almost like... They believe that they know what God wants them to do and they don't need his word anymore. They don't need to seek his counsel anymore. So they shut the door of the temple. They shut God out of their decision-making now because they think they already know what God wants. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. We have to continually be seeking the Lord in the decisions that we make and to not shut him out of our decision-making, particularly here because what they're doing is wrong. But we don't need to hear a word from the Lord anymore. We don't need to seek his face. We're going to do what we want to do. We want to kill this man. We've already made up our minds. We don't need the Lord anymore. A dangerous place to be. Verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. You have to know about the Roman... The Romans did not like any kind of upheaval. They didn't like any kind of rioting. This tribune, we know his name from chapter 23 and 23, 26. The same tribune writes a letter to Felix and he signs it Claudius Lysias. So we know who this tribune is. Claudius Lysias was a commander of a Roman army of over 1,000 troops. So this was a powerful man. And he's making his way over to this mob. And the Jewish people know the Roman army, they don't like mobs. They don't like upheavals like this. And so you're going to see them stopping right away in fear of their death. Um, Verse 23, verse, sorry, 32. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. You gotta circle that if you want. Bound with two chains. Remember the, the, the prophecy. It was told that he was gonna be bound. Paul now, for the rest of his life, will essentially be bound as a prisoner. He's gonna be house arrest for a while. He's gonna get out for just a little bit, for, but for essentially the rest of his life, he is going to be a prisoner. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Verse 35, and when he had came to the steps, he was eventually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So the crowd had started to beat him before the tribune got there, and they had inflicted so much damaged him. They had hurt him so badly, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the beating that he had already received. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. What does that remind you of? A man who is told by his friends to not go into Jerusalem because it's not safe for him, who then goes into Jerusalem as dragged into the barracks 
by the Romans, and the Jewish people cry out, crucify him. Jesus, you got it, Derek. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> we see here with Paul him facing the same thing that Jesus faced. And the way that Luke is describing it, he is making, he's, he's trying to make it so we cannot miss that. That we need to be ready. If we're going to choose to follow Jesus, we need to be ready for the same things to happen to us as what happened to Jesus. They start crying out, away with him, kill him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought out into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something? Seems like Paul was partly Canadian with how polite he was. <laughs> may I say something? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness? So not only was Paul misunderstood by his own Jewish friends, the Romans completely misunderstood who he was. They think he's some Egyptian. And, there, and there's a story out of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And he tells us about this group of Egyptian assassins. Uh, it's the, the word that's used for them is translated dagger men. So this group of dagger men. And what they would essentially do is to go into crowds with these daggers. And in the midst of a crowd, grab their daggers and then kill people kind of discreetly. You could hire them to do it. And so this group of dagger men, their leader in one instance, Josephus tells us, threatened to really knock the whole walls of Jerusalem down. Just like in Jericho, we we're going to do the same thing to Jerusalem. And the Romans fought against them, killed many of them, but the leader of that Egyptian army got away. And so this tribune thinks Paul, mistakes Paul, for the leader of that Egyptian group known as the Dagger Men. And that must be why they're beating him, because he's one of those, he's that leader of that group who tried to destroy Jerusalem. So they completely miss who Paul was. Verse 39, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So to say I am a Jew from Tarsus, that's like name dropping. I'm a Jew from this intelligent city, where it's known for its intelligence, known for kind of producing people of power. I'm known, I'm from here. That's why he says no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him, verse 40, permission Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush. Remember before, this tribune could not even get, understand a sentence out of what they were accusing Paul of because of the chaos, because of the great upheaval, the great confusion. Now, there's this great hush. He addressed them in Hebrew, saying, Verse 20, uh, chapter 22 now. Brothers and fathers, hear the, def hear the defense that I am now about to make before you. That word defense is uh, a Greek word where we get the word apologetics from. So let me share with you, let me defend to you, let me share with you the hope that I have in Jesus. And what he's going to do now is share his testimony. We know it. We've, we've studied through it before. But it's interesting that here to make a defense of why he believes Jesus is the Messiah, what does Paul 
talk about here? Notice what he talks about. He doesn't talk about five arguments as to why, uh, kind of use uh, pointing to facts, pointing to um, five arguments to why there is a creator, anything like that. He shares his story. And he shares his story, and his story, essentially what he says in his story is a line from The Chosen. Have you, have you watched the show The Chosen? There's a show, it's on, it's on YouTube, they're free to watch. There's an app as well. Uh, I, I love it, personally. And uh, The Chosen is, uh, I don't want to get in, I don't want to get in The Chosen. But there's a line in the movie, and you can, you can watch it. And it's the story of Mary Magdalene. It's the very first episode. And Mary Magdalene speaks a line that is very much like what Paul does here. Mary Magdalene speaks a line, actually it might be the second or third episode, but here's what she says. Because she doesn't fully understand, but she's been changed by Jesus. And she says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the one thing that happened in between was him, was Jesus. And that's essentially what Paul is doing here. I was one way, but Jesus saved me. The one thing that happened between how I was and how I am today, what changed was Jesus, and he goes to share his story. Verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the, at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, there's another name drop. This was a man who was very well respected. Uh, what Gamaliel said of Paul at one point as his student, the only bad thing I can say about Saul of Tarsus is that I cannot find enough books for him to read. Um, this was a man who was very well respected. Paul name drops him on purpose here, but it was also true. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, I was trained by him, this well-respected man, being zealous for God, as all of you are in this day. So he compliments this mob who's trying to beat him, pointing out the good things in them. You really shouldn't have beaten me, but here's what I say that's good about you. You are zealous. He compliments the people who are hurting him, who are wanting to hurt him. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. The way, this way, it's talking about followers of Jesus. This is what it's called in the book of Acts at this point. So Christianity is called this way, talking about what Jesus said as the way, the truth, and the life. So this way I persecuted to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. You can ask them, if you don't believe me, you can ask them what I did. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you have a red letter Bible, that's in red letters because it's Jesus speaking to Paul here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. It's, the word for that is uh, kind of like mumbling. Think of Charlie Brown and the teacher. You hear the teacher talking, wah, 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 wah. It's like that's the idea here. They, they heard some voice, wah, 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 but they had no idea what was being spoken. Verse 10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And that's a great sign of a transformed life when the question out of his lips is, 
What do you want me to do? You are my Lord. You are my master. What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. We always have to be ready to take the next step, to take that step of obedience, even though we don't know what's coming. Can you imagine if at this point Jesus explained to Paul everything that was about to happen to him, that would happen to him after giving his life to Jesus? Think about your own life when you came to faith in Jesus. Could you have handled 30, 40, 50 years ago being told everything that's going to happen in your life? We couldn't handle. I couldn't handle. If I was told I'm going to have six kids and they're going to have special needs and I'm not going to be able to sleep at night, I wouldn't be able to handle that. I, mean, I got to change it. I thank God for the place I'm at. Please don't get me wrong. We can't handle that. And so we have to be obedient one step at a time, trusting God to carry us through. Verse 11, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, it's like Paul says to Jesus, I, I would go, but I, if you didn't just blind me, so I can't really get there. And so he was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him. Kind of a hint back to Acts 1.8, the outline of this book. You'll be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And now God has appointed you to be one of his own, to be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So God always uses people to reach people. Jesus could have very well told him everything that Ananias told him and could have eliminated Ananias from the equation. He didn't need Ananias to do this. But God always uses people to reach people. And so God has Ananias come and share the hope of Jesus with Paul and to kind of lead him to that place of giving his life to Christ. That's what rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, that, those two things together are often coupled together in the book of Acts. And the reason for that is... You know, we, we have something where we profess it. We, we, we say the sinner's prayer. We profess Jesus as our Savior. The way in which we see that happening in the New Testament is not just speaking words, but by getting baptized. And by getting baptized, you are professing to the world that you're a follower of Jesus. And so they're always coupled together in the book of Acts because they're one and the same. It's not that being baptized saves you, but being baptized is the evidence, is the, is the not the evidence, is the proclamation that you have been saved by Jesus. So if you're here today and you haven't been baptized, but you've given your life to Jesus, that, that's a foreign concept in the scriptures. The way in which you proclaim your faith is through the waters of baptism, identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. You announce to the world that I am chosen. I'm, I'm surrendered my life to Jesus. I'm choosing to follow him. 
So God always uses people to reach people. And we have to, as we see here, be ready to always take that next step. That step of obedience for some is baptism. That step of obedience for others may be getting back into the word. Step of obedience for you, that next step for you may be seeking the forgiveness of someone else who you have harmed. The next step that maybe you need to be obedient to is seeking reconciliation with someone who you are divided with right now. We have to be willing always to take that next step and just one step at a time, trusting God with the results. Verse 17, when I had returned, Paul goes on sharing a story. When I had returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Before we get to that sentence, I want you to notice here, Paul mentions the death of Stephen. And it was an evidence that when God started to stir within him, work within him, I believe it was at Stephen's death, that when Stephen prays for those who are stoning him to death. And Paul is there holding the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen to death. That's when God started to stir within him. This man is different. This man is praying for those who are persecuting him, who are killing him. There's something different about Jesus. I believe it's at that moment that God really started to stir within Paul, work within Paul's heart. He says, go for, I will send you to the Gentiles. That's the last word he can get in because that last word, Gentile, that's a swear word to the audience that he's speaking to. It's one of those words that if you were a Jewish boy and you were to say, God sent me to the Gentiles, your mom would get a bar of soap and wash your mouth. Just like maybe your mom did to you when you were younger, which I would please don't do. But it's a bad word, and that's as far as he could get. Verse 22, up until that word, they listened. Then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from this earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, why are they so so angry about this? The Jewish people taught that the only reason Gentiles were created was to make the fires of hell hotter. That's why God created Gentiles, to make the fires of hell hotter. And now he's saying God has sent him to the Gentiles to share God's love with them. And they're like, away with this guy. He's got to die. This guy, we gave him a chance to speak. Now he's spoken this nonsense. we got to kill him. Away with such a fellow from this earth. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. They still don't know. They don't, Romans still don't understand why all of this is happening, why they're so upset with him. So let's bring him back in inside and have a conversation with him. Again, the same thing that happened with Jesus and Pilate as Pilate begins to question him. Same thing happening to Paul. But verse 25, when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and condemned? They can examine him by flogging. They get a whip. These whips were the same kinds, the same whip that was used for Jesus. These whips were leather and embedded with a stone 
and bone and glass. And you would use the whip to whip a person and they would stick in your back and then they'd pull it. This is what they did to Jesus. This is what they were just about to do for Paul or started to do with Paul. Seems like they hadn't quite done it yet. And Paul very wisely invokes his Roman citizenship and says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? That wasn't a question to say, can you interpret the law for me? He knew what the answer was. He knew it was unlawful for them to do this to a Roman citizen. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what what are you going to do for this man as a Roman citizen? The tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The reason for that is, is because people would try that. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. And then they would need proof of it that you are a Roman citizen. And if if you could not have proof of it, then you were punishable by death. That was punishable by death. If you claim to be a Roman citizen, but were not. Verse 28, the tribune said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I got one up on you. I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also, afraid, was also now afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him, which was illegal, which was something that he could be punished seriously for. So verse 30, think of the story of Jesus in Easter. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. This is the whole Sanhedrin that Paul would now have to stand before. And he brought down Paul and set him before them. Same thing that happened to Jesus, being brought before the whole Sanhedrin for questioning, the same thing that's happening to Paul. This is Paul's First time, not first time. These are his initial days here as he comes back to Jerusalem. And you can see trial after trial happening to him already. Just as it was told was going to happen is happening. So a number of things I just want to point out. They're in your notes uh, if you have them online or if you don't have them online. I put them on the screen as well. I'm going to start putting the notes in the bulletin again so you have them in front of you. But uh, always be ready. And so let's just learn a few things from what we see in this story of Paul. The first one is this. Always be ready to go wherever the Holy Spirit leads. Wherever the Holy Spirit leads you, be willing to go. Wherever he prompts you, maybe he's prompting you right now to go to a certain person and seek forgiveness. Maybe he's prompting you right now to go share your faith with a neighbor today. Maybe he's prompting you to pack up everything and to take your family and to be cross-cultural missionaries to another land. Wherever he is leading you, we have to always be ready to be obedient to the Spirit's leading in our life. So always be ready to follow wherever the Holy Spirit leads. Number two, always be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we saw that in Jerusalem. As Paul gets there, they rejoice at what God is doing. And and we talked about a few weeks ago, um, a few weeks ago, probably a couple of months ago now. And sometimes it can be hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. Like if you're competing for the same promotion as your coworker and they get it and they come into your office, they're like, hey, I got the promotion. Rejoice with me. Sometimes it can be hard to rejoice in those circumstances. But we need to be people who rejoice at the good things, the common graces of the Lord, but also those times when the Lord moves. Let's be quick to rejoice 
and to celebrate with others what God has done. And in this case, it was on drawing Gentiles to himself. So let's rejoice at the good things God is doing. And then number, number three, always be ready to be misunderstood. There are going to be people who say, hey, I've heard about you. And they're going to have a, the wrong idea of you. And it's important for us as believers, there, there's, um, there's a prayer, and the prayer has a line in it, always seek to understand more than be understood. And I think that's a, that's a good lesson for us. But understand that there are going to be people who misunderstand, who lump you in with a group of fanatics that they know. I've had neighbors who say, you're Baptist. Are you like those crazy Baptists in the U.S. who do all of these things? They misunderstand who I am. So be prepared for that. Be prepared for it to be misunderstood. Number four, always be ready for hostility when you live for Jesus. We see it so clearly patterned after the story of Jesus here is Paul. The hostility that he faces for the name of Jesus. So as some, maybe the hostility is going to be a result of, like Paul, of being misunderstood. But be ready to face hostility. Be ready. Just as Jesus said, they're going to hate, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Be prepared for suffering in this world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's subject to decay. And so we have to be prepared as the people of God for hostility. We have to be prepared for times of suffering. And we have to know that in those times, you know, we want those mountaintop times. We don't want to be time, spending those times in the valley. And the, the, the views on the mountaintop are absolutely beautiful. But things don't grow in the mountaintop. Things grow in the valley. And so be prepared in the valley, in times of hostility, in hard times of life, to allow God to mold you and to teach you through them. That's where things grow, in the valley. So always be ready for hostility. Number five, always be ready to give a defense. And Paul, and Peter says in the epistle, he writes, always be ready to give a defense for those who ask you for the reason why you believe. And with Paul here, he gives the defense. He gives an apologetic. He gives his story as evidence of what Christ has done in his life. And so often we can use the excuse, well, I don't have all of the answers. What if he asked me this question? I don't know the answer to that. And we even see with Paul here, what he does is share his story. And so here's maybe an, an application point for us. Learn your story to be able to share it well. You know your story. You know what God has done in your life. You know how he's brought you out of darkness into the light. You know how he's forgiven of your sin and the fellowship you enjoy with him. So learn to share that story, short, long, whatever opportunity God gives you. Learn to share that story in a way that will point people to the hope and joy of Jesus Christ that you know that they also can know. So always be ready to share the hope, the reason for the hope you have. Just share your story. I was one way, now I'm different. What happened in between was Jesus, and he changed my life. This is what he did. This is how the man who was baptized ended up being baptized. The Lord used his wife, and the life change that happened to her as a seed that was planted, and through that, God would draw this man to himself. So always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready to share your story. And then number six, this is something that Paul says that we see now, and we're going to continue to see it through the rest of Acts. Always be ready 
that this could be your last day on this earth. Always be ready that you could breathe your last breath today or Jesus could come back today. And you know, with those who pass on, oftentimes we say, I just wish I had one more chance to have a conversation with them. So have that conversation today with them. I wish I had one more chance to share the gospel with that friend, with that neighbor. Then don't waste today. Make the most of the opportunity and the time that God's given you today to do that now. Always be ready that today could be your last day. Paul, the prophecy was that he was going to be bound in Jerusalem. And Paul says in Acts 21 and verse 13, I'm ready. I'm ready to be bound and I'm ready to die for the sake of Jesus. And is that a statement that you are able to make today? I am ready today to die. So let's make the most of the opportunity. If you're living today, it means that God has work for you to do. He has a message, a good news message as a good news person to share in a world that is filled with anger, a world that is filled with sadness. In the midst of that, God has you breathing today that you can be a testimony to his grace and to his goodness. So let's be ready at any moment Christ could return. Wouldn't that be amazing today? If Christ returned, let's leave nothing on the table before we go. Let's go out into the world storming the gates of hell with the good news of Jesus so that we won't say if we breathe our last breath today or they breathe their last breath today, I wish I had just one more opportunity to share the gospel with them. Let's not have that regret. Let's storm the gates of hell together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Paul here who was ready for whatever it is that you had for him, that he was ready to be bound, that he was ready to die for the sake of Jesus. And Father, thank you for the example of Paul here, that even when he's bound, even when he's in the process of being arrested, he makes the most of the opportunity given to him and is able to address a crowd and share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, with them. And I pray, God, that you would make us people who are bold that you would open doors for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope and the joy that we know that others can also know in relationship with him. So God, when you open those doors, make it obvious to us. Sometimes we need that nudge, God. We need you to just make it obvious when those, you open those doors. And so I ask that of you today. And that you would use this church family, continue to use us together as a church family to make much of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, thank you. Thank you for the privilege and the joy of being used of you to build your kingdom. May we be ready today for your return. May we live today in light of this return. May you send us out into the world to make you known. And may we go boldly. May we go with grace. May we go with gentleness. And may you give us wisdom in knowing the right things to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless. Thank you.